So, obviously I'm doing the book of Ezra. Um, now, from what I found out is that Ezra used to be one book with Nehemiah, but then later got, somewhere down the line, it got split up into two. Um, it was all written by Ezra, obviously. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. Uh, in this book, it picks, uh, about, uh, picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some of the Israelites to Jerusalem and what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there, basically. Specifically, the two books focus on three main leaders. I'll only be talking about uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra. But um, it talks about the three leaders who basically led the rebuilding efforts. Um, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book design basically focuses on the efforts of each leader. Uh, Zerubbabel basically leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Sixty years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. Um, and then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. Uh, now, these stories, they're not parallel, in, as in they're in the same time, but they kind of have similar, what's the word? Similar starts and sort of similar finishes in which they kind of like fail, in a sense. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. Uh, each begins basically with the king of Persia prompted by God. Uh, I think it states they're stirred up by, they're stirred, their spirit is stirred up, sorry, um, to send a leader to Jerusalem. And he offers resources, uh, the king, offers resources and support, and each leader encounters some form of opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but not in the greatest of manners. Uh, so the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he is moved by God uh, to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Uh, it states that this uh, fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Uh, the name Zerubbabel actually means planted in Babylon, or something along those lines. Um, he represents the generation born in the Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication. Uh, the past stories of the tabernacle and the temple's dedication should be in our mind, and this is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. Uh, he is dwelling with his people and it doesn't happen. So while some are happy about the rebuilding of the new temple, uh, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon cry out in grief. Um, it's nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future and it's here where we get the first story of opposition. Uh, I think they're called adversaries but in other places they're called the, uh, the grandchildren of Israelites who were not taken into exile and they had been living in Jerusalem all along and they came to offer help with uh, the temple rebuilding and Zerubbabel basically refuses and responds you have no part in our temple and this generates conflict um, which we'll get later into and which Zerubbabel overcomes but it's weird because it's not exactly in the best of manners. Um, the prophets, now the reason why this is actually also wrong is because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all the nations to participate in worship of God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes to be. And now basically that's chapters 1 to 6. Uh, now zoom forward 60 years, Ezra comes along, he's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon and he's a Torah scholar and a teacher and he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, uh, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem and Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and uh, social renewal among the people. And again, more conflict, uh, Ezra finds out that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem, and some of them weren't even Israelites. Uh, Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. Uh, Ezra states, people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites, 
and they're going to corrupt exiles. So uh, Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt because of the manner he goes about it. And uh, then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these uh, marriages should be annulled and the women and children be sent away, which is a bit harsh. Um, anyway, the decree is carried out, and it's weird because this wasn't an instruction from God. This is kind of him just going on about his own method. Uh, the prophet Malachi did say that exile should care about purity, basically no race mixing, um, but he also said that God is opposed to divorce. So yeah, and that's basically chapters 7 to 10. Um, I'm going to quick quick summary of all the chapters, and then just an overall um, of what I think the book's about. Anyway, so chapter 1, Jehovah stirs up the spirit of Cyrus the king, kingdoms of earth are his, he has to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, his people can go and build the house, gets given all types of resources and goods, and so the captivity was brought from Babylon to Jerusalem, including the vessels of the house of Jehovah, which Nebuchadnezzar had originally taken from Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took them from their land, and now they're going back to Jerusalem and Judah. This chapter, verses 2 to 65, are like a list of families and how many went, and it goes like, the children of Parosh, 2,172 went, or something along those lines, and it repeats for another 64 verses. Verses 66 and 67 are about animals and how many they went, and that's basically the chapter for that. Chapter 3, uh, people gathered together as one to Jerusalem. Uh, they built the altar of God to, uh, they built the altar of Israel, sorry, um, to offer up burnt offerings, the morning and evening uh, burnt offerings. They held uh, the Feast of the Tabernacle, and now at this point, the foundation of the Temple of Jehovah, bless you, uh, now, at this point, the foundation of the Temple of Jehovah was not laid. The people executed um, other instructions according to the grant they had from Cyrus. And they were also looking for Levites at the, of the age of 20 years and older to be appointed as um, to superintend the work of the House of Jehovah. Uh, the foundation is then finally laid for the Temple of Jehovah. Huge celebration for most, but not all, um, like those who had seen the first house, which were the priests, Levites, and the chief priests. Now, chapter 4, um, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin go to Zerubbabel and chief fathers to build with them. Um, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and chief fathers respond, you have nothing to do with us. We alone will build uh, as King Cyrus has commanded. Um, that's when conflict occurs, and after that, they make life hard for the people in Judah to in, in Jerusalem, and they make it difficult to... I think they physically, at some stages, stop them from building. But uh, essentially, they write to Art Xerxes. Uh, the king against Jerusalem, saying if they get their way, completing the walls and joining the foundations and whatnot, they will not pay tax and ultimately will damage the kings. Just politics, basically. Uh, it's, and they also state that it's a rebellious city, hence why it was destroyed in the first place. He responded back that the city would not be built and until he gives order to, and they were first not to until the second year of the reign of uh, King Darius. Um, yeah, chapter 5, Zerubbabel and Joshua begin to build the house of God at Jerusalem with the prophets of God. Uh, Tatnai, the governor on that side of the river, asked who gave them orders and for their names. A bit of conflict occurs. Um, he sends a letter to Darius and he tells Darius more or less everything and asks what his um, pleasure would be in taking action. A um, bit of a pickup now in chapter 6. Darius gives orders for a search, finds what Cyrus said originally, states expenses be diligently given to these men and that they won't be hindered to um, build what they need. Um, and to one up that, he also gives the order that whoever shall alter the rescript, let Timothy pull down from his house and being set up, let him be hanged thereon and let his house be a dunghill for this. Which I kind of enjoyed that part. Um, it gets built and completed by the third day on the month of Adar, sixth year of Darius' reign. Then there's a sin offering for all of Israel and a Passover. And 
It states that they have separated themselves from the filthiness of the nations to seek Jehovah, the God of Israel. Chapter 7, Ezra finally comes into play, um, tells us that he's a scribe and that he... And, he, and the king granted all him all his requests according to the hand of Jehovah his God. Uh, Ezra directed his heart to seek the law of Jehovah and to do it and teach Israel the statutes and ordinances. Uh, Artaxerxes tells Ezra several instructions and gives gifts, uh, sets magistrates and judges who, who may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as, knows, uh, as know the laws of thy God and teach ye him that's them not. Uh, chapter 8, there's another genealogy at the start of the... Book it uh, mentions like families and how many males are with them. Like it goes uh, like the children of such and such, and then the children of such and such, and with him two hundred males. After that, they get gathered to the river. They encamp for three days. They surveyed and found none of the sons of Levi. But a few verses later, they found a son of Levi named Sherebiah, and then the genealogy kicks off again. Chapter nine issues occur where the people, priests, and Levites don't separate themselves from the people of the land. There's a few nations mentioned. Um, Ezra plucked off his hair from his head and his own beard, um, takes on the entire responsibility and goes to Jehovah for their transgressions, states, Jehovah, God of Israel, they are righteous, for we are a remnant that is escaped, as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for there is no standing before thee because of this. Chapter 10, while Ezra prayed and confessed, the people gathered around him and wept. Um, then he decides to put away the wives alongside, alongside those born of them. Um, Ezra goes about making amends, but in his own method, not exactly in the best way. Um, list the names of those that had taken foreign wives. Um, I'm not sure if it was every single person that had taken a wife, or it was just some of them. That wasn't that clear, but yeah. Um, overall, the book begins with hope, and it seems like it will go well. Ultimately, ends in disappointment, I would say, because even though they're back in their land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. Uh, while Ezra does his best to put the people on the right track, I want to say he doesn't address the core issues of their heart. And the book points out that, is, uh, and what the book points out is that God's people need a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. Good lesson, in my opinion. Um, that's me done, basically. Uh, if you're curious about anything or want any type of clarification, please feel free to read the book. Uh, that's it. just the importance of the purity of the line. Um, now, you mentioned Malachi. In Malachi, I won't read it because I don't want to take the time. In Malachi, it says that God was seeking a seed. And that's why it was um, so abhorrent to God what they were doing, leaving their Israelite wives and marrying these foreign wives. Because he was looking for a seed. And who's that seed? Who was he looking for? He was looking for the Lord Jesus. Um, God's whole mind, um, basically, from the, the promise of the kingdom of David being set up, was the seed, singular, the one seed, the one who would come, and he would be, he would sit on the throne of David. Um, and so, this, um, the whole taking foreign wives was. It's from Satan. Just like Satan wanted to kill off all the seed, he wanted to kill off all the baby boys. Um, you know, and he, he tried to do that through several um, men through the ages. The same thing, it's the same plan to corrupt the seed by um, another means. So, I mean, and he's been doing this from the start in, in Genesis 6, corruption of the seed. Um, and then you start Exodus, let's kill all the baby boys. 
Um, and that, that goes through even right until Herod. You know, he, he wants to kill the baby boys the time the Lord Jesus is born. But the bringing in of the foreign wives, again, a corruption of the, the seed, the line of David needing to be maintained. Um, and, yeah, I guess that's why it, it was so harsh. You know, you sort of mentioned that it was harsh. Mm-hmm. But um, there couldn't be another way that that line of David needed to be preserved. And it was going to be preserved through those guys. So Zerubbabel was one of them. He was in the royal line. It was the same with Abraham and Haggai. It was, it was really painful for him to send her away. Mm-hmm. But it had to be done if, in order for there to be blessing in the future. And it's, it's the same, like Phil says, it's, it seems really harsh, but you can't have the blessing to follow without the proper, I guess, judgment passed. Who was the priest that um, he killed those two, the man who brought the foreign wife in? Um, oh, uh, was it Phineas? Yeah. Phineas. So this was sort of back in the days of Moses. Yeah, similar, similar thing. He, he brought a foreign woman into the camp. And Phineas, he killed them both. He was a priest. But he knew the mind of God. This, I mean, this was just not, not to happen. Yeah, God cares about the seed. God, he cares about children. And for us, application-wise, as believers, we have to be very careful too. God cares about our children and our children's children. And we don't want to go, get into something that's going to take away from a, a household established under the authority of God, teaching children and bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. God doesn't want that rule indeed. God wants that established and maintained. A believing husband, a believing wife. A household under the authority of God. Just application for us. Just to dispel as well the idea of God being harsh in, in, in the way he dealt. Just going back to what you're saying, Sarah, with, um, with Abraham and, and Ishmael. He specifically says, and I will bless the lad for your sake. And he sends an angel to Hagar when she's in need. And he provides for them. And he looks after them. And he makes sure that she's cared for. So God getting his people out of an improper relationship doesn't take away from the fact that he will still continue to care for and provide for, um, for those who, who might have been hurt by that relationship. A lesson that comes out of that is we cannot export the principles of grace taught in the New Testament into the Old Testament. We've got to maintain that distinction. And when we do come to the New Testament, the distinction is really strongly enforced. For example, in 1 Corinthians 7, where it says, plain, black and white, if a woman has an unbelieving husband, this would be the closest thing we'd get to, to a, a Jew having married a, a non-Jew. In the New Testament, if a woman have an unbelieving husband, and he's willing to remain with her, don't leave him. Really plainly stated. Whereas in the Old Testament, the principle was exactly the opposite. If you've married someone that's a foreigner, get rid of them. Because the command was, you're not to do that. Yeah. That is, the command was, you're not to marry a foreigner.